Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, good morning, church. Yeah, welcome to Grant Memorial on this, the third Sunday of Advent, if you can believe that. Uh, my name is Cam, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so excited to have the privilege of digging into God's Word with you this morning. Now, to begin, I, I want to ask each of us a question. If you could have one wish come true, what would it be? Now, I know that there are some here who are disappointed because often in hypothetical situations like this, you're granted three wishes, but alas, today you only get one. What is your greatest need? The, the one thing that if that variable changed in your life, everything else would fall into place. The, the one obstacle that if removed would change everything for you. What is your if only? If only I could pay off my debt. If only I got that promotion. If only I could change that facial feature. If only I could lose 50 pounds. If only I was married. If only I had a clean bill of health. If only my back was better. If only that relationship was repaired. Then things would be good. Then I could be happy. I anticipate that we all have that thing, although some more urgent and consistently pressing than others, that if this were different, then life would be good. Well, I want us to keep that thought in mind this morning as we see Jesus encounter a man with a great and obvious need. Uh, today, we pick up in our series in the Gospel of Mark, starting at chapter 2. Yes, that's right, friends. We have made it to chapter 2. So would you turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 12 this morning. Mark 2, starting at verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again had entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could, know, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything 
like this. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we dig into your word, that you would make it alive for us, that it would uh, jump off the pages and into our hearts, into our minds, and uh, Lord, that our lives would be changed as a result of meeting with you through your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text this morning begins with Jesus returning home to Capernaum after traveling throughout the Galilean countryside, preaching the good news of the kingdom, as well as healing the sick and demon-possessed alike. Now, remember uh, from a few weeks ago that that when Jesus had left Capernaum just a, a month or two earlier, he had mobs searching for him with all sorts of requests, as well as a curiosity of who he was. And so it's not surprising that when we read in verse uh, 1 and 2 that as soon as people heard Jesus was back in town, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. Right? It doesn't take long for the people to mob Jesus again. And Jesus takes this opportunity, as our text continues, to preach the word to them. So imagine with me Jesus sitting in the courtyard or or the center of likely Peter's home, and there are so many people packed inside and outside that no one can even maneuver through the crowd. Now, I know that many of us have forgotten what this feels like because these days we tend to keep six feet of distance between us. This is not a social distance story. But all it takes is one Jets game or one Bombers game to remember what it feels like to be jammed in like sardines with the inability to move because you're gridlocked shoulder to shoulder with people on all sides. Well, this was a Bombers concession concourse type of situation in first century Capernaum that day. People were pressing in to hear what Jesus had to say and likely to see what he would do perhaps for them and the many needs they held collectively. And we read about one such group of onlookers in verses 3 and 4. It says, Some men bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the, man, the mat the man was lying on. Now, to start our exploration of the text this morning, I want us to reflect on this group of men by exploring two key characteristics relayed to us about them. And the first thing that we can say with confidence about these men is that they had extreme faith. These guys had extreme faith. These four guys were absolutely sure that Jesus was in the business of healing. Right? Look at the trouble that they went to to get the paralyzed man to Jesus. You don't do that if you don't believe that Jesus can do something. In fact, as we'll read a little bit later on in verse 5, verse 5 says that, that their faith was so extreme that Jesus' actions towards the paralytic were the result of their faith. Did anyone catch that? Jesus doesn't heal as a result of... The, the, the paralyzed man's faith, although we can assume he likely had some faith too, but rather that it was the faith of these men that led Jesus to action. You see, their faith was so strong that Jesus honored it in another person's life. Think about that. And think about all the people that you pray for, that you care about, 
The people you wish God would work in the lives of. You see, these guys had a faith that God could reach even those who may not be reaching towards Jesus themselves. Which leaves us with the question, do we have that kind of faith? Are are we petitioning Jesus on behalf of others or do we believe that our faith is simply private and all about ourselves? This is a good challenge for us this morning. The second thing we notice about these men is that they were persistent. Right? I, I think we need to read verse 4 again just to make sure that we catch this. Since they could not get to him because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, digging through it and then lowering the mat the man was lying on. Right? Not only do these guys believe that Jesus could do something, but they were so convinced of it that they stopped at nothing to make sure that it happened. Right? What, what really makes this story important is their persistence. The story says that, that these four men carried a grown man who was paralyzed, right, who was dead weight, for who knows how long. Right? The text doesn't say. Maybe they traveled from the other side of town. Maybe they traveled from outside of town. But regardless, they carried him to the house where Jesus was, and when they saw there was no way they could get to Jesus, they thought outside the box and carried the man up a ladder or the steep steps to the flat roof. Now, just as an aside, I have enough trouble carrying a toolbox up a ladder to my roof, let alone carrying a grown man. But these men didn't give up. They, they didn't say, oh, oh, well, it must not be in God's will when an obstacle presented itself. They got creative, they got desperate, and they got destructive. Now, can I just point out that, that breaking into someone's house by digging a hole in their roof was no more socially acceptable then than it is today? Right? I, I think, like we mentioned a few weeks ago, I think that we sometimes get desensitized to the stories of Scripture, particularly uh, the well-known ones, and somehow think that, this, that what happened wasn't all that you know, spectacular. It was somehow commonplace. Well, this was not a common occurrence. In fact, its, it's absurdity is precisely why we're talking about it 2,000 years later. Right? Its unusualness is why it's recorded in the Bible. These men cut, dug, smashed a hole in the roof of the house, a man-sized hole. In fact, the Greek translates literally as they unroofed the roof. Right? When they were done, the roof was no longer a roof. It wasn't serving its purpose anymore. This is not normal. Right? The people in the house did not think this was normal or okay. They didn't look up and wipe some sawdust from their eyes and turn back to Jesus and go, you were saying? Right? No one's shrugging this off, thinking to themselves, oh, it's another roof entry today. That's cool. This was not normal. It was not normal. This was as crazy, as weird, as destructive as it would be if someone were to enter the sanctuary above me right now from the ceiling. I asked Sean to, to do that right now during the message for effect, but evidently he declined. <laughs> but let's not fool ourselves into thinking that these men were acting with great couth. They weren't. They cut a hole in the roof, 
That's precisely the point. These men didn't care what people would think. They didn't care about the cost of the roof or of their reputation. There was nothing that would get in the way of their friend meeting with Jesus. And again, we are struck with a time of reflection. Is this you? Is this me? Is it so important to us that our friends see Jesus that we will count whatever the cost in order to make that happen? As I was studying this passage, I noticed for the first time that this story speaks of no prior relationship of the four men with the paralyzed man. Right? I keep saying their friend. Right? We assume they're friends, and maybe they were, but the Bible makes no mention of it. They could have been strangers. Maybe these guys were on their way to see Jesus, and they saw the paralyzed man there, and they, they had pity on him, and they picked him up and carried him so he could see Jesus too. Who knows? Which makes the question even harder for us to ask ourselves, doesn't it? Our people, their eternity, their souls, even those we do not know, important enough to us that we will stop at nothing to introduce them to Jesus. Now either way, if they knew him or not, these four men knew that this man needed to encounter Jesus and they had the faith that Jesus could do something when they did when you look at the world, at your friends or strangers, do you know how much they need Jesus? Do you have faith that Jesus can do something about it? And will you do whatever it takes to see to it that he can? It's amazing that this encounter even happened, considering the obstacles. But these guys had faith that when this man met with Jesus, things would change and they were right. You see, after they lowered him down through the hole in the roof, right about when everyone still had their mouths wide open in complete shock, and while Peter was doing the math on the cost of a new roof, Jesus responds. Verse 5, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. which is a really weird thing to say to a paralyzed man who's been brought in for physical healing. Can you imagine what must have been going through this man's mind? Or even his four friends still exhausted from their journey? What? That's it? That's not what we were hoping for. Right? I anticipate some of us will experience this on a much smaller scale in just under two weeks when we open a Christmas gift to find something different than we expected. How awkward is that, right? Thanks, we say with a fake smile as we kind of turn it around. Cool, right? You all know the feeling. So take that feeling and translate that to this man and his friends watching from above and multiply it by 1,000. Right? This is not what we asked for. I, I mean, thanks for the thought, Jesus. But you know I'm still laying here unable to move, right? I've got a much more immediate need here. This is actually an incredibly strange scene when you think about it. 
And there's actually, there's more dialogue to come before it's even resolved. I imagine that these brief moments felt like an eternity to the paralyzed man. So why, why did Jesus not just heal the man? Surely he knew why they had come, right? Why did he look past the man's obvious need to offer him something else? Why did Jesus seem to miss the point? Well, the simple answer is that Jesus dealt with the man's greatest need first, Well, it may not seem as obvious, the man's greatest need wasn't to be able to walk to enhance his life. The man's greatest need was to receive eternal life that he could walk forever. It was not his legs that needed to be healed, but rather his heart that needed to be healed first and foremost. Right? Jesus knew that this man had a much bigger problem than his physical condition. He had a heart that was hardened towards God, full of sin, as we read in Matthew 15. And it would separate him from God forever. And in light of eternity, not being able to walk on earth really wasn't that big a deal. As pastor and author Tim Keller writes, the main problem in a person's life is never his suffering. It's his sin. Mark 8, 36 asks the same thing. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, right? To get everything they want, yet forfeit his soul. Matthew 18, 8 says, it's better for you, this is appropriate for our passage, to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. It's like, it's like Jesus is saying, yes, I'll get to that. I'll get to your physical needs. But if all you desire of me is for your body to be healed or your earthly circumstances to change, you're underestimating the depths of your heart's longing. I could answer your wish. I could give you what you think is your greatest need, but it wouldn't be enough I would be selling you short if all I did was address your physical poverty. Because being able to walk again cannot save you. You'll be satisfied for a time, but soon you'll realize that the contentment doesn't last, that your longings aren't fulfilled, and you'll find that you're not as happy as you thought you would be. And quite frankly, you'll remain as needy as you were when you were begging on the street from your filthy mat. You see, there was a whole room of people there that day who could walk. And guess what? Their ability to walk didn't save them from discontent, from unhappiness, from need, from the longing of their hearts for more. So simply, granting this man's wish wouldn't save him either. Which brings us back to how we started this morning. Our own personal wish or desire, that thing we wish that God would give us or grant us that would change everything for us. And I know this may sound harsh or insensitive. Please know that's not my heart in this. But church, the promise made by the hope of that thing 
whatever that thing is for you, is a lie. I'm sorry, but it cannot and will not save you. It cannot fill the deepest longings of your heart. Now, that doesn't mean that these are bad things. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't desire or pray for them. We must. And as we've seen in this gospel already so far, God is gracious and compassionate. He does heal. He does restore. He does bless. But we must know above that that our blessings cannot and will not save us. They cannot and will not satisfy our deepest longings or create in us the happiness we so desire. Only Jesus the one who can forgive our sin, soften our hearts, and change us from the inside out can do that. And everything else is a temporary and synthetic fix. All right, for those here with a sickness, right, we think that when the sickness is gone, we'll be good. But this room is filled with all sorts of people who don't have the sickness. And they're not fully satisfied or fulfilled simply by not being sick. In fact, they don't even think about not being sick. They take it for granted. It's something else for them that they're putting their hopes in. Or to the one who isn't married, who thinks that marriage will satisfy their deepest longings. Well, take a good look at many of those you know who are married. Do they look satisfied simply with being married? No. It's on to the next wish, the next hope for a home or for children or for a better marriage. And friends, this never ends. There will always be another thing because church, things will never ultimately satisfy us. Health will never satisfy us. Earthly blessing will never satisfy us. Money, comfort, ease will never satisfy us. People, relationships will never ultimately satisfy us. Church, only God can ultimately satisfy us. I was talking with Bethany this week, and she said, it's like moving on from, or it's like moving from an attitude of if only to an attitude of even if. Right? From if only to even if. Not living our lives saying, if only God would do this, then things would be okay. But rather living our lives saying, even if God doesn't do this, it will be okay. Because God has met my greatest need. The only thing that will completely satisfy no matter what else happens or doesn't happen. In this encounter, through Jesus' actions here, he tells the man, you think you simply need something from me, but what you really need is me. And through the forgiveness of sins, you can be with me forever in this life and in the one to come. As Jesus says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And 1 John 5.11 makes it clear, God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. 
church, eternal life, that which we were created to long for, that which will truly satisfy when all else proves unable is found in nothing else but in these words that Jesus says to the man, which open the door for an eternity of joy, love, and peace. Son, your sins are forgiven. And what we must notice is this. Jesus isn't giving this man something subpar. Sure, it wasn't the gift that he expected, but Jesus actually gave him something beyond his wildest dreams, right? And I know this discourse that, that we've had this morning may sound like a bit of a downer, right? That nothing we're chasing can satisfy us. But friends, it's actually quite the opposite. This is wonderful news, it means that in Jesus, we have access to true, lasting, complete satisfaction. Right? This is the best news for any of us who have tried to find fulfillment in other things and came up wanting. True joy, as we've remembered this morning at the Advent table, joy that cannot fade, joy that isn't tied to our ever-changing circumstances, is available to us as a gift from God. John 3, 16 to 18 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Church, our hope is not found in what we see in front of us. Our hope is found in what Christ has done for us. And that's the most incredible news. So after extending this kindness to the man, by giving him something greater than what he could expect or than what he requested, Jesus senses that he's offended some people. <laughs> Verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves... Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Now, here's the thing. The teachers of the law, the, the scribes here, are mostly right. Right? They know that only God can forgive sins and that anyone else claiming to forgive sins would be blaspheming. Their theology is spot on. All throughout the scriptures, we read that it is only God who can forgive sins. No Pharisee, rabbi, temple, temple ruler, scribe, prophet could forgive sins. Right? They could lead people through repentance. They could relay to people that God had forgiven them, but they themselves had no authority to forgive sins. That was an authority and, a, and an ability that was exclusive to God alone. Why? Because it's against God that we've sinned. And forgiveness can only be granted by the one who's been sinned against. Uh, let me illustrate. Let's say that Pastor Steve came up right now and punched me in the face. Right? right in front of all of you. Right? And I'm shocked and bleeding, quite offended, a little embarrassed. Now let's say Pastor Sean comes up and he goes over to Steve and he says, Steve, I forgive you for punching Cam in the face. It's okay. It's over. You're forgiven. Right? What am I going to think in that situation? Right? What? 
That's not a thing, right? Sean can't forgive Steve. Only I can forgive Steve because I was the one who was wronged, and I have the face to prove it. Now, in the same way, our sin can only be forgiven by God because it's against God that we have sinned. No priest or rabbi or pastor can forgive sins. Only God can. And so, as I said before, the scribes were right in saying that only God could forgive. But what happened is that they made the wrong assumption. You see, if it is true that only God can forgive sins and anyone else doing so would be blaspheming, and if it's true that Jesus just forgave a man's sin, there are two possible explanations. Number one, that Jesus is not God and therefore is blaspheming. Or, number two, that Jesus is not blaspheming because he is God. And the scribes immediately chose door number one, accusing Jesus, this fellow, as our text says, in their hearts of blasphemy. When what they should have been doing is praising God that he was with them in the flesh. Right? Their theology was fine, but their conclusion was not. They missed connecting the right dots, and in doing so, they missed God incarnate in their midst. Now, it's interesting to note that it is this very charge, the charge of blasphemy as a result of Jesus claiming to be God, that would ultimately be held against Jesus, leading to his death by crucifixion, giving him the right to say, your sins are forgiven. You see, while Jesus would make it right, it seems like the teachers of the law never quite get it right. Now Jesus, knowing that the scribes in attendance uh, thought that he was just some fellow committing blasphemy, responds in verse 8. He says, why are you thinking these things? Can you imagine being one of the scribes at the time? Jesus calls out your thoughts. That alone may be enough for Jesus to have made his point. Oh, you don't think I'm God? Well, how do I know exactly what you're thinking? Right? But, but he goes a giant step further than that, showing them the authority that he has, but not before he sets it up, kind of in epic fashion. He asks them in verse 9 and 10, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now this is kind of a rhetorical question, or at least the scribes took it that way because they had no answer. But what Jesus is essentially saying here is, anyone can say your sins are forgiven. Anyone can say, get up and walk. It's actually equally easy, right? This is kind of a trick question. Words are cheap, he says. But let me show you that I'm not all talk. I speak the truth, and I have the authority to do both of these things that I have said. And in verse 1, Jesus says, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. If that's not a mic drop moment, uh, I don't know what is as the entire crowd of witnesses marvel at what Jesus has done, praising God as a result. Now, as I said earlier, there's, there's so much in this text 
so many different angles, so many uh, rabbit trails we could, uh, we could go down because it's an incredible story. But I want us to, I want to ensure before we wrap up today that we see from this account the difference that this encounter makes in the life of the paralytic. The difference that encountering Jesus can make. You see, after being lowered through the roof, Jesus proceeds to change everything for this man in at least uh, three ways in this encounter. First of all, Jesus adjusts the man's circumstances. He adjusts his identity and he adjusts his purpose. Now, we've already unpacked in detail just how Jesus adjusts the man's circumstances, right? He, he physically healed his paralysis so that he could walk straight out of the room into the, uh, straight out of the room that he needed to be carried into. But beyond that, and much more importantly, Jesus healed his heart by forgiving his sin and inviting him to know and be known by God for eternity, right? So Jesus changed both his physical circumstances and his eternal circumstances. Secondly, the text tells us that Jesus adjusts his identity. And as we were walking through the text, I'm not sure how many of us noticed how Jesus referred to the man. In verse 5, Jesus calls him son. Did you notice? And this isn't in some derogatory, uh, you know, expression like in the deep south from an elder to a young punk, like, listen here, son. Right? That's, not, that's not what's going on here. What Jesus is doing is he's extending an invite to this man to a new reality, to live with a new identity as a son of God. Right? Jesus, in front of this entire town, is giving value, giving position to a man who had lost all earthly identity. And how do I know that? Because up until this point in the text, we simply know him as the paralytic, no name, no connection to a father or a family, no trade, just the paralyzed man. I'm sure that's how most in the town knew him too. You know, the, the paralyzed guy. But Jesus knew him as something more than that. See, in the moment that Jesus forgave this man's sin, he was no longer just a paralytic. He was God's son. I wonder what what you're called. Are you known by your name? Are you known by your parents? Your job? Your past? Your accolades? Your mistakes? Your friends? Your interests? Your works? Or are you known by your place in God's family? If you, like the man have been forgiven by Jesus. The Bible says that you have been adopted into God's family and you are considered a son or daughter of God. You don't need to search for your worth or for your purpose other than in Christ. Right? To Jesus, this man was not defined by his inability to walk at the beginning, nor was his new identity found in his ability to walk. His identity was as a child of God. Galatians 3.26 says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We read later in Galatians 4.7, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you an heir. 
Right? Jesus calls this man son, and as a result, he's an heir to the eternal life of the kingdom of God. And church, that is what he calls you and I to. So Jesus adjusts this man's circumstances and his identity. And finally, when we look close, we notice that Jesus also adjusts this man's purpose. He sends him out on mission. I'm not sure if you notice, but this is my favorite part of the entire story. There's a, a seemingly insignificant detail in verse 11. Three words, in fact, that I think provide a challenge to all of us. In verse 11, Jesus doesn't just tell this man to get up and walk. Get up and go home. Rather, he tells him, take your mat and go home. That's strange. Think about this. This mat, the mat he's laid on for who knows, his whole life, the mat that represents all of the hurt, judgment, disability, the alienation, the humiliation, and Jesus tells him to take it with him? If it were me, I would want Jesus to say, burn your mat and go home. Right? Throw your mat and run away. I would want to forget, right, to, to move away and never remember, to embrace my new reality that has nothing to do with the mat. So why does Jesus tell him to take his mat with him? Could it be that a part of his healing involves testifying to the fact that he's been healed? Could it be that, that his mat is a sign to everyone else that God showed up? Could it be a reminder to himself of where he was before he met Jesus? Right? Rather than, than becoming another man who could walk, he's called to be the man who can walk now, the man whom Jesus healed. You see, carrying his mat is carrying his story. It's giving glory to God who altered the ending in the most radical way. And friends, we all have a mat we all have a story. Maybe you have a past that Christ has pulled you out of. Maybe you have a family situation that Jesus rescued you from. Maybe you quite literally have scars from an event in which God allowed you to go through. Maybe you wear scars from something you're still working through. Maybe you're still sitting on your mat praying that God would make it unnecessary. But whatever your mat is, that's your story. It's who you are compared to who you are now. It's, it's who you were compared to who you are now. Or it's what you are living through but you're not defined by. And that mat, church, is your way of telling people about God. It's your story of healing, of forgiveness, of comfort, of salvation, or the fact that God hasn't given up on you. We all have a mat. The question is, what are we going to do with it? Some of us try to ignore our past, try to ignore our story, our challenges, our struggles. Some of us try to leave it behind. There's others who, who even try and hide behind it to make excuses. Don't blame me. I, I used to have a mat. But Jesus wants to save people. 
He wants more people to come to him. And he needs persistent, faith-filled people to lead the way. Carry your mat. Carry your story. Tell others how Jesus adjusted your circumstances, changed your identity, and has given you a new purpose. And as you acknowledge how Jesus met you, changed you, look to see who Jesus is calling you to bring to him. And then get creative, destructive even, to bring people to Christ. Because you know from experience, you remember by looking at your mat, the change Jesus can bring when we come to him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for stories like this that remind us of what you have given us. God, I thank you that, that you see past what we think we need so desperately and you give us even more. You give us what we really need. God, that when we sell ourselves and our hearts longing short, you know and you provide everything we could possibly need. God, I pray, Lord, that we would be people who acknowledge, Lord, who live in the new circumstances that you have given us, who live by the new name, the new identity that you grant us, and who live in the new purpose that you have given us, that we would be people who are faith-filled and persistent in our pursuit of bringing others to you so that their circumstances, their identity, and their purpose can be changed in light of who you are. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at, at grantmemorialchurch.com.